Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hi there, it's Baha'i Blogcast, and it's me, your host, Rain Wilson. And I'm here with Laylee Miller-Murrow, and you are the founder and executive director of the Tahereh Justice Center? That's correct. And thanks for joining us on this here blog cast. Um, I love the Tahereh Justice Center. As you know, I'm an active supporter of it. Um, What you do is so important and so beautiful. And for those who don't know about it, can you... Fill us in on what the center does. Well, the Tahari Justice Center fundamentally provides protection for women and girls who are fleeing human rights abuses. We do that through free legal services, through free social services, and public policy advocacy. That's the what, but really the why is that we're promoting the equality of women and men. And our purpose for being is to try to implement that principle of Baha'u'llah that we know is so critical to allowing the world to function as it should. Um, And really our job, we're kind of a small cog in that larger wheel of trying to promote equality because our role is simply to support the courage of the women and girls who've already decided to reject violence and give them that free legal representation, perhaps the emergency housing they need, the psychological services so that they can do what they already know they want to do, what they already need to do, be free from violence and really change their families, their cultures, their communities, and by doing that, establish the equality of women and men. Fantastic. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful. Such important work. Um, and I love your story. I love people's stories of their spiritual journey and how they got to where they are as a Baha'i. And I'd love to hear that a little bit. Maybe you can share that for people who, who aren't familiar. Well, I mean, I, I think it might sound weird to go back to high school days, but um, I, I think, you know, for many of us, we're, we're engaged in an authentically confusing search to figure out what our purpose in life is. And it usually starts around those years. And for me, it was no different. And um, I knew that I wanted to do something impactful in the area of human rights, but I had no idea what that might mean or what that might look like or what kinds of qualifications were required. But I think a really mysterious thing that happens is that when we put out into the universe or we say a prayer to Baha'u'llah to try to be of service, he does um, both a really kind of generous and very cruel thing back, which is to answer the prayer in a way that fundamentally means we have to be tested and we have to be crafted and molded and changed and made into the tool, whatever the tool is that Baha'u'llah has decided, um, you know, is the tool that that we need to be of service for. And so I, I used to ride horses when I was younger, and I often think about this tool of service for the horse, which is really, really technologically simple. It's the horseshoe. But, and it's a very simple tool. It has like no moving parts. It has nothing electronic. It's just this really simple tool of a horseshoe. 
But in order for it to be made into the tool for service to the horse, it has to be thrown into fire and turning red hot cold. And then it's thrown onto an anvil and it has to be beaten up a whole lot. And then it has to be thrown into freezing cold water. Then it has to be put into the oven again. And then it turns bright red again. And then it gets beaten up again on the anvil. And it has to go through that process just to be molded into what's pretty simple, relatively speaking, as a tool of service for a horse. And so I think when we put out there that we want to be a tool of service for like complicated stuff, either race unity or I don't know, justice or human rights, um, the, the necessary answer or the necessary process is like painful fire and anvil beating up and ice water and all yeah, those things yeah. that happen. So, you know, I mean, I think I went through my own process. I, it's not worth going into all of the details of that. But I, what I wouldn't want to convey is that I, I even really understood what I wanted to do. I definitely didn't. Um, you grew up in a Baha'i family. I did. I grew up in a Baha'i family. I was really blessed to um, have an active Baha'i community around me and to be of service. I was able to go to Baha'i conferences and felt very lucky for all of that. Um, one, Before you were thrown into the anvil. Yeah, and the anvil the stuff, you know. And <laughs> it's, it's a great analogy. I love it. Well, and, and, and it's all relative as well. You know, what, what's um, red hot coals to some is like lukewarm yeah. sand to yeah. someone else. So it's a complete, it's all relative, but everyone has their own process. I think, um, so that's all very philosophical. I'm not really answering your question. So to answer your question, how did I end up into this work? Um, I cared deeply, and this did start in high school, um, for civil rights issues and, and race issues. Growing up in Atlanta, um, I had exposure to some issues of racism that were shocking to me. I grew up in a Baha'i community that was racially diverse. There were people in my life who I deeply loved, who um, were from different parts of town, had different races. It was a very diverse community. And um, I had people who I loved who had very direct and extreme forms of racism that happened to them. So, and I realized that I was white and I had a different advantage and that it was a responsibility to try to use that advantage in some way that was helpful, but also in a way that was a true partnership. Um, and so I began that journey by working first for the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change. Um, and was a nonviolent student coordinator for a number of years. Then in college, um, somebody told me that they thought law might be good for doing civil rights issues. But I was always very insecure about schooling because I was horrible at taking tests. Um, in high school, I had a really solid 2.3 um, GPA. Wow. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't get into college the right way. <laughs> Yeah. But you snuck in? And I don't have a high school diploma. You don't have a high school diploma? To this day. But you're a lawyer. I know. That That's weird? crazy. <laughs> so the way it happened was... Who did you pay off? Yeah. What happened was that when I was in high school, they had this kind of go to college. It was really a way for the college to make money. They said, come here in your senior year of high school and take a few classes. And I wasn't really enjoying high school anyway. So I went to um, this college and I took a few classes, and they basically said, oh, you can stay. I thought, that's great. So I never had to apply. Technically, I should have transferred my credits back to high school to graduate, but I just never did. Okay. And at some point, realized nobody cared. So it doesn't really matter. But, but, um, 
but then when I applied to law school, I barely got in. In fact, I didn't get in. Um, I got rejected from most places. And then two weeks before classes started, I get into the part-time evening division off the wait list of a law school, American University Law School. I ended up starting there. Um, but then within three years, graduated with a master's degree and a law degree and had an amazing opportunity to litigate a case that helped transform law and helped change my life. What's that? Great setup. <laughs> <laughs> so that case was when I was in law school, having had another moment of the, the realization of my own inadequacy for most things I wanted to do, um, I thought I wanted to be a human rights lawyer, but I realized really quickly that the people who actually had those titles went to Ivy League schools and spoke a few languages. I spoke no other languages. and You speak English very well. Well, thanks. So that's my only accomplishment. And um, But I wasn't going to be that. I, was, I wasn't going to be able to do that. But I talked to somebody who said, you know, really human rights law is about taking an area of the law, being good at it, and then applying it to a human rights context. So being a family lawyer, for example, and then just using it to help domestic violence right. victims. Yeah, that makes sense. Being a copyright intellectual lawyer, intellectual property lawyer, and using it to help indigenous communities in Brazil mm-hmm. against pharmaceutical companies. Being a property real estate lawyer and using it as general counsel for a Native American Indian community. Mm. So I, I think we have kind of a amorphous, non-applicable notion of human rights work, but this person was very helpful in helping me realize that really human rights work, and for that matter, all service, is about having a skill you simply apply to a context that's sure. need, needing help. So It's I, the same thing with medicine, right? If you're a doctor or a dentist, you can help mm-hmm. poor people with their teeth or with their health. It right. doesn't mean that you have to live and be a doctor in Beverly Hills. Absolutely. Or business or like almost any field. You can absolutely make the same analogy. Um, so in the summer of my second year, I decided to learn from an immigration lawyer. Um, one can actually get a real job as an immigration lawyer. You can start your own gig as an immigration lawyer. And then you can help refugees and asylum seekers as a part of immigration law. So I was working for an immigration lawyer in the summer of my second year of law school Um, At the same time, mostly because I was lazy, I had a paper I had to write for a class called Asylum Law, and I decided to write my paper on whether or not you could receive asylum in the United States because of female genital mutilation. I say it was lazy because I also had another requirement for a law journal that I was writing for to produce an article, and it had to be on a gender issue. So I thought, oh, I can just kill two two birds birds with one stone and write this paper. I also had a personal interest in the issue because I had done some service um, in the Gambia in West Africa with the Baha'i community there in female genital mutilation. I think it's so cool when countries have the in the title. The Gambia, it's called? And it is the, yeah. The Gambia. Yeah. Like the Mexico. Right, right. Countries should consider that more. (laughs) It's it's totally cool. Go ahead, sorry. It is. It's very cool. And it's a very small country, but it's still cool. It's cool. Mm-hmm. So there they, they practice female genital mutilation at a really high rate. And, um, and so I began to understand the practice and had just an interest in it. So by writing this paper, I made a hypothetical argument that the law as it was then was wrong. And the law at that time didn't recognize 
um, forms of persecution inflicted on women simply because they were women in particular cultures mm. or communities as grounds for asylum. In order to get refugee status or asylum, you had to prove that your persecution was because of your race, your religion, your political opinion or nationality. Mm -hmm. So being a woman wasn't considered one of the grounds. And it was hotly debated in the law at the time. And so as a student, I hypothetically wrote this argument that you should be able to receive asylum on the basis of gender. It just so happened that my teacher for that class was an adjunct professor who during the day was director of asylum for the United States with the then Immigration and Naturalization Service. Um, when I worked for the immigration attorney in the summer of my second year of law school, he handed me a thin file and said, so I see on your resume you know something about this female genital thing. And I said, well, I know a little bit about it. I'm writing a paper. And he said, good, see what you can do with this case. We have a trial in 14 days. Now, that meant that we had four days to oh prepare gosh. a brief or any submit any evidentiary materials because there's a 10-day submission requirement. I opened the file and there was one piece of paper in it that said female genital question mark. And it was the file of a client who was 17 years old who was languishing at that time in maximum security prison facilities um, just outside of Newark, New Jersey. She was being subjected and had fled just hours before it was supposed to be inflicted on her female genital mutilation and a forced polygamous marriage. She was to be married to a 45-year-old man as his fourth wife. Wow. And neither of these things she wanted, not only because of what it would do to her um, and her own freedom, but because of what she understood it to mean. She had a cousin who had died from the ritual. She had an aunt who ironically, her name was Laylee, and she died from the ritual. And so Fozia understood what this meant and, and was fleeing from it. She fled to the United States because she had family here, but then um, was honest and handed over her passport at the border and they put her in prison. So because of really Bahá'u'lláh causing different stars to align, um, the hypothetical fact pattern I used in the article was exactly her fact pattern. And so I was able to cut and paste her name in the article that I had written. And so within four days, we submitted a 70-page brief and about 100 pages of evidence and exhibits. And anyone in law knows that you have to submit all your evidence at the trial level. You don't get another shot at that. When you appeal, you can only appeal on matters of law, but you cannot submit new evidence. So it's very important to get all of that in at the trial level. I ended up arguing her case um, and we lost. And then I took the case on appeal to my uh, university, the American University, where they had a human rights law clinic. And I continued to litigate the case as a law student to the highest immigration appellate court in the United States. Um, and at that level and with a good bit of media attention at that stage, she won and her case um, set the national precedent and changed the law for the question of whether or not you can receive asylum because of gender-based persecution. Wow. That's impressive. It, it was an amazing thing that I feel fortunate but so many things to be a had, part of. So many things had to fall into place in a way yeah. that you put out that intention. You know, help me, help me be a part of something. Help me change the world in some way. Help me... 
um, make the world a better place for, mm. for immigrants or women or legal rights or civil rights. And then all of a sudden these little, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs kind of got put before you. Like here, here's a case and the right professor and the right time. Right. It's amazing how that works sometimes when you go back and look at your life and you realize, oh, all of these things needed to align in order for me to get to this point. Absolutely. And, and I think it's also humbling to, to know that so little of what, what service we're able to give has anything to do with our actual qualifications to do it. Mm. It has much more, I think, to do with the doors that open, the opportunities that Baha'u'llah presents. Now, of course, we have to walk through the doors and, and we do have to be molded into that tool. And yeah. um, there are skills we have to develop, but it, but I don't think there's kind of an inherent sense of qualification. I, I felt that way throughout my life. I mean, not only on this case, every job I've had, I felt unqualified for and just kind of lucky to have. And um, I, for example, out of law school, I worked for the Justice Department but then soon after that worked for one of the world's largest corporate law firms. And I, my law school was not even a law school they recruited at. Even at Ivy League schools, they wouldn't hire you unless you were on law review, which is kind of an honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they recruited me because of relationships that I had and experience they had in working with me on a, a certain issue. And, you know, again and again, I just, I think that, um, we shouldn't worry so much maybe about like the grades or our test scores or, you know, perfect, I don't know, positioning or pedigreeing for certain things. If Baha'u'llah wants it to happen, it will. And if he doesn't, it won't. And there's so little actually that we have to do with all of that. I'm reading the biography of George Townsend right now. And I have a similar sensation reading his story, how everything in his life really was preparation to be there to assist Shoghi Effendi in translations and in, and in writing, because he was, of course, the number one proofreader and, and helper of Shoghi Effendi to really master his English and um, just reading about his travels through the United States and his religious search and his deep knowledge of uh, the Bible and and. Western Christian traditions, and he was an English teacher and wrote essays, and he was just the perfect uh, tool raised up by Baha'u'llah to be there right when Shoghi Effendi needed that particular help, and uh, it was a very moving story. So how do you take me from that? You had these incredible um, experiences uh, in your law career. How does that, how do you segue from that to starting a nonprofit. Why not just continue being a lawyer? Why did you start a, a nonprofit like Tahare? Um, the way the Tahare Just Center got started was because um, Fauzia's case, when it was on appeal to the highest immigration appellate court, got a lot of press attention. It was in the New York Times several times. Um, uh, we were on CNN making different arguments. And so there was kind of a period of like a week where it was in the press quite a bit. And so what happened was that there was then commercial interest in the story of her escape and the score, the story of um, my helping her as a law student in the United States. And so she and I ended up um, selling the rights to the story and writing a book together. Um, that's called Do They Hear You When You Cry? It was published by Delacorte Press, which is an imprint of Random House. And as a result of that, there was some money available. And 
I decided to use all of that money to start the Tahiri Justice Center because the other thing that happened when there was a lot of press in the case was that I was getting a lot of phone calls from women and girls who needed help. My number was publicly listed at the time, and they were calling me knowing that I was helping someone like Fauzia and hoping that I could help someone like them. They were very similar to her, and it made me realize that there were many, many, many other women who needed this kind of service. I didn't feel qualified to do it myself, and so when I started the Tahiri Justice Center, I actually stayed out of the day-to-day running of the organization for its first six years. I had some wise mentors in my life who reminded me that I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to be a lawyer, really. I didn't know, definitely didn't know how to manage people or fundraise or anything that would be marginally helpful when starting a nonprofit. So I ended up um, working initially at the Justice Department. I lasted there like not even 11 months, I think. I realized pretty quickly that I would much rather be on the outside than on the inside. Um, I was a better advocate, I think, um, from the outside. And that's when I went to a corporate law firm. And that surprised me. I had never believed to, I was not interested in working for a corporate law firm. I never thought that was something that I would do. But I met some people who I really respected and admired. I um, I really admired their humanity, their spirituality, their commitment to service. And the firm itself, um, which is called Arnold & Porter, has a very strong pro bono program. They encourage all of their lawyers to do up to 15% of their work on a pro bono basis. So um, ingrained in the ethic of the company itself was service. Mm. And in fact, by the time I left the firm, I was doing 50% of all my work on a pro bono basis. And the firm, I still got the large law firm salary and they were perfectly happy. In fact, I calculated, I spent like millions of the firm's dollars on litigating cases for people who couldn't afford lawyers. And the firm was very happy to have me do that. And so that was a side of charity and goodness that from my previous and position, lawyers get such a bad rap. Right. You know, and companies and it's firms get such a bad rap. And, and some of them do have a culture of yeah. of giving and service built in. It's possible to have yeah. a kind of spiritually advanced uh, uh, exactly. I had company a prejudice. that makes money. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely had a prejudice. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, when one tries to do good, it's easy to... Um, almost believe that you're better than others who aren't doing good full time and it's not accurate and Mm. and it is itself a prejudice you know and I think that the law firm experience really helped humble me around just the humanity and the incredible goodness of so many people who were there and their real willingness to use those resources and there's nothing in of course in the faith we know that resources are needed. They're needed for the faith. They're not inherently evil. We have to make sure that they don't get in the way of our soul, but they can be used for yeah. good. And I saw a lot of people who did that. It, so when we did the Tahare fundraiser in Houston, is kind of similar. Like there's all of these people from Houston with cowboy boots and big hairs and gun racks on their trucks coming to the... <laughs> big, to pearls. the big pearls. Big pearls. <laughs> And uh, coming to the fundraiser, and it was like an episode of Dallas. And 
I wouldn't say that I was judgmental necessarily, but I was like, what's happening here? But some of the most generous people you'd super ever want to meet. Super kind, com- super kind Committed to philanthropy, mm-hmm. making charity and, and generosity a center point of their life. It's connected to their faith. It's their faith in action. Right. And that was very eye-opening. It, it, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, we know that in the faith, unity is what's most important. And we think of it more easily or more obviously maybe in terms of like racial unity and other kinds of things. We have to also think about unity in terms of income disparities, the need to bring people together in mutual understanding as well as obviously deal with the underlying spiritual disease that allows for the kind of huge disparity that we see in wealth. But it also doesn't help to demonize on either end. And and sometimes that happens. And so my experience at the law firm was very helpful, not only for my own prejudices, for my own professional growth, because I was really trained and it really was useful, but it also helped to inform the model that we now use, which is to leverage the goodwill in the good hearts and the wallets of thousands and thousands of pro bono attorneys that are at private firms. So Tahere litigates, we litigate at any given time now around 700 cases at a time. And we have only 60 staff, but the way we're able to do that much work is by partnering with volunteer attorneys who come from these same corporate law firms and big companies Mm -hmm. who very willingly donate their time and their money. They pay for witnesses, they pay for translators, they pay for travel. They do things we wouldn't be able to afford to Mm -hmm. do. And they allow us to really multiply our capacity and do way more. So it, it has been important to how we do our work, in addition to my own personal now, journey. you named this nonprofit that you founded Tahre after Tahre, of course. And you say right on the website, this is a Baha'i-inspired nonprofit, a Baha'i-inspired charity. Um, I've been to Tahre fundraisers and gatherings. You say prayers, Baha'i prayers, before the meetings. You talk about your spirituality and, and the Baha'i inspiration behind the work that you do. What, what's that about? That's really brave and really difficult to do, myself being in the nonprofit sector. It's a, it's a very scary thing to kind of put your faith hmm. out in front, especially a, a faith that hardly anyone's ever, ever heard of. So talk me through that thinking, that experience. Did you ever think about calling it just called like, the Women's Rights Center of America or something like that? Or how did, how did you link it to the faith so directly? Yeah, never, no. I think um, we only have a few hours on this planet. Like our whole, our whole life is, is pretty short in the grand scheme of things. And I think for me anyway, when I sat back and asked myself the question, what, what is worth my time? What do I want to spend time doing? I, I could have been working at the firm. I mean, I could have stayed at the firm. I could have worked for another nonprofit. If I was going to start an organization, which was needed, and then there was this opportunity to do it, it felt to me like the only thing worthy of my time as a Baha'i was to try to implement Baha'i principles. Anything else would be just to repeat what others are doing, and we know that what others are doing, while good and good-intentioned, aren't fundamentally addressing the spiritual underlying issues, which are the ills of humanity, and only Baha'u'llah's message can do that. And so not that I or any other Baha'i-inspired organization perfectly knows how to do that, but we're on a journey at least, and a journey with Baha'u'llah in trying to figure that out. 
And so, I don't know, I think that for me, naming it Tahereh was a way to honor her legacy and, and raise the profile of someone who the world should really know about, mm-hmm. who far too, pe- far too few people don't know about. Why are we transparently Baha'i-inspired? For me, there are a few reasons. And the lawyer in me cares about copyright implications, for example. I mean, I talk about the equality of women and men in the context of the two wings of a bird all the time. There's no more beautiful analogy and more perfect, no more perfect way to talk about the equality of women and men than to talk about the quote from Abdu'l-Bahá of humanity being made of two wings, one female and one male, and that both wings have to be equally strong to fly. I can't responsibly do that unless I give credit to who really said that. You know, I can't responsibly talk about consultation as a really important tool for unity, nonpartisanship as an important operating mechanism for the organization, unless I'm acknowledging where that's coming from. It wasn't a brilliant idea I had. It was a principle that I've simply adopted or tried to implement. And so I almost feel like there was kind of like a, I don't know, an honesty or a copyright issue with not mentioning Uh the fact that this is Baha'i inspired. I mean, the other has to do with the fact that in the time of Abdu'l-Bahá, um, and, and you were mentioning reading about George Townsend, I find very inspiring the early stories of Abdu'l-Bahá where the frequency and the regularity and the degree of sacrifice that he engaged in charitable work then became synonymous with the faith itself. And people in those early years really equated the Baha'i faith reputationally with service and charity. Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm always very struck by that when you read about a day in the life of Abdu'l-Bahá. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of books that'll take you into that in, mm-hmm. in Haifa and, and in that area, in Akka. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Like, he would get up in the morning, pray and meditate, and he would write a bunch of Baha'i letters. And he'd spend most of the day doing, being chari- doing charitable kinds of work mm-hmm. and getting people together and involving the governor in this discussion and seeing poor people and handing out food and, you know, riding his horse off somewhere else and making sure that something... And then he would see some Baha'is or some Baha'i visitors and then at night write a hundred more Baha'i letters. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, just percentage of his time, it was serving the poor. And we as Baha'is are supposed to use him as our example. Uh, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that, okay, what does that mean to emulate Abdu'l-Bahá? Well, it means to emulate someone who's spending a majority of their time serving their community and serving the poor. That's right. And and he did that in all the ways that um, are, are maybe familiar to us, giving out coats to people who needed them and bathing people who needed a bath, healing people who were sick and all those things. But he was also strategic, actually, in his charity and philanthropy. Um, One of my favorite stories is when he almost mysteriously began to ask Baha'is from a certain village in Iran where they were farmers in that village to begin moving to the Jordan Valley. And Abdu'l-Bahá had purchased a bunch of land that used to be owned by the Romans like a thousand years ago, and it had all of these underground grain storage areas that were kind of natural, cool storage spaces. And he asked these Baha'is who had the skills of agriculture to move to this area. Then he was very specific in telling them which crops to grow, how much to store, 
how much seed to then replenish. It was a very strategic thing, and nobody completely understood. And then, um, uh, and then World War, and then the war broke out, and Haifa went hungry, and he brought in the food to feed the city, and that's strategic. You and know? that's why he was he was knighted, right. offered a knighthood. And the, the British he, kind of protected him, ultimately. Yeah. It's amazing, really. So I, I feel like as a Baha'i community, both for reputational reasons, too, because if we're doing good work incognito, I think it doesn't help share the charitable and service nature of the faith. It also makes it feel like we're hiding something. So I think there's a weird psychological thing that, you know, if I mention the fact, particularly because it's an unusual name, if I mention it, not in the first paragraph, but in the back page, there's an immediate, like, why did you hide that? Are you hiding? Should I be worried about that? Are you mm-hmm. embarrassed about that? Mm-hmm. Is there a good reason you're embarrassed about that? And it's kind of like this psychological thing that then happens where I think if we're just completely unapologetic and completely matter of fact and upfront, nobody cares. Mm. Actually, nobody cares. I mean, I think you, you may have noticed at the gala, I mean, we say of a high prayer, and a few people look around. Some people even raise their eyebrow. I, I looked around, and I saw someone go, what? <laughs> the what? They weren't even sure what it was. The what is one of my favorite <laughs> phrases. But then we said the Baha'i prayer. It was beautiful. It was beautifully sung by Jamie Heath. Um, and then they had a great time throughout the night. They hear about the work. They hear about the lives that are saved. And it just a matter of factly registers in their brain, oh, this is what Baha'is are engaged in. But the reality is most of our staff aren't Baha'is. Most of our board are not Baha'is. Mm-hmm. All, almost all of our clients are not Baha'is. None of that matters. None of that matters. Baha'i or not, we're working towards the implementation of the equality of women and men. But we're just unapologetic and kind of matter-of-fact about it. Yeah, that's, that's great. What do, you, um, what do you personally dealing with working on in your spiritual journey right now? Um, I, it's, it's so cliche, but patience and detachment, I think, and and I'm not sure I've not ever not worked on those issues, (laughs) but I think that I, um, I do care a lot and I was half an hour late for this podcast. I just want to talk to listeners. Oh, no, but that was actually totally But you were so perfectly patient. Thank you. No, really, that wasn't a test for me. <laughs> Believe me, I have. <laughs> there other, uh, oh, yeah, that was nothing at all. Um, but but I think that I do. I am a little um, intense and I like to I have a, a control side to me and I kind of like to move things along. And that can be a good quality. And it is also a source of my worst tests, because when things don't go my way, when Bahala has a completely different plan for it. Um, when the people I'm working with have, you know, completely different ideas, it just requires a lot of prayer and exhaling and understanding and trust in the larger process and mm-hmm. the larger plan and knowing that it's going to be okay, even though it's a little confusing right now. But that's not new. That's not unique to me. I know that's that's No spiritual tests are new or unique to any person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what it, are you reading a Baha'i book right now? Or is there some quote that you're looking at, uh, dealing with, referring to in your life? You know, um, a quote I just posted on my Facebook had to do, it's a quote from Abdul Baha that basically says um, that it, it's, it isn't, I'm going to mess it up verbatim, but 
kind of, isn't it an amazing thing that I love you so much, yet I am happy that you're going through sorrows mm. and tests. And that dichotomy. That's the horseshoe thing again. It is. And it's seeing the end in the beginning and trusting the process and welcoming tests, like not only tolerating them and, and um, holding your breath during the test, but in fact, bringing it on and charging it and seeing it as a blessing and as a bounty and as a source of joy rather than sorrow. I'm not there yet. Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> but I like the quote. <laughs> I always get really scared when I pick up the prayer book that I'm going to accidentally say one of those prayers that's asking for tests. Like, oh, yeah, actually, no. that whole section confuses me. Yeah. I thought it was a mistake because there's already a section called tests and then there's a section called assistance with tests. And I never understood. And then at some point I realized, oh, wait, that other section must mean you're actually praying for, for tests. Yeah. And then the other section is you're hoping to be freed from them. Maybe. How about this? I'm going to pray for t more tests for you. Thank you. Boom. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Back at you. So what is your work for Tahare like these days? How long have you been with the organization? When did you found it? It started in 1997. So we're in our 19th year. We're headed into wow. our 20th year right now. Fantastic. And what, what is the work that you do? So I'm the executive director of the organization, which fundamentally means my job is to allow other people to do their job. And so it's, it's maybe less interesting than a lot of people think. Um, I mean, I, I love my job, but I'm not the human rights lawyer. I'm not the frontline person who gets to litigate cases like Fauzia's every day. Really, my daily job is to manage people and um, there are good days and bad days in that. And also my job is to raise the money that's needed in order for the organization to do what it does. Our budget is about $5 million every year. I've got to raise about $5 wow. million. And, and so in some ways that can be difficult. It's, it's hard to talk to people who one might think has a lot of money and should be able to share it. But then you also realize there are a lot of worthy causes. There's a lot of competition for the same attention. And it can be a little hard because you hear no more than you hear yes. And... Um, but, but I do find spiritual purpose even in that side of my job. And um, I, I was particularly inspired by a hidden word mm -hmm. that says, Oh, children of dust, tell the rich of the midnight sighing of the poor, lest heedlessness lead them into the path of destruction and deprive them of the tree of wealth. To give and to be generous are attributes of mine. Well is it with him that adorneth himself with my virtues. I love one of the aspects of that quote that I really love um, and just hearing it again is um, less heedlessness lead them, the rich people, into the path of destruction and deprive them of the tree of wealth. So there's two wealth. You're talking about this midnight sighing of the poor. You're telling the rich about the poor so that they're not deprived of wealth, mm -hmm. of real wealth, of mm -hmm. the true wealth, which is spiritual wealth. So there's there's a nice little circuitous path even just in that first sentence absolutely and and i also think another amazing thing about this quote is it's not only telling rich about the midnight sighing of the poor for the purpose of empathy or sympathy but the very next sentence is to give and to be generous or attributes of mine and so it's very clear that it, it, it is incumbent on all of us. And I say us because I make way more money than many, you know, the vast majority of other people in the world. I make far less money than me, a lot of other people. It's all relative. But 
all of us are to be generous and should be in a place of giving. And it's fundamentally a privilege and an honor and a spiritual gift to be able to be given the opportunity to do that. And so much of my job is yeah. that. That's, that's how I, in my recent work in the nonprofit sector um, with Mona Foundation and with Lee Day that I've founded with my wife, um, I feel that way. A, a lot of people have a hard time asking for money, but you're really, you're giving someone an opportunity to be generous by saying, hey, it would be really great if you donated $1,000 to us and here's what that $1,000 will do. And here's how we can put it to great use. Mm-hmm. You're giving them an opportunity to give. And you're giving them an opportunity to be happy. So, so it, That's the tree of wealth. That is, that's right. So not only from a spiritual perspective, um, but also from a statistical perspective. So there, there was a, an article, actually a whole book that was written, written recently on happiness. And they found statistically that people who are engaged in service... And people who gave charitably, and they actually measured it by dollars given as a proportion of their wealth, people who gave more generously were on average much more happy. And, and so this is, it's not a trite concept, this idea yeah. of giving and being of service, and that that leads to happiness, it leads to spiritual well-being. Obviously, it also helps people who really need it. The, I'm struck by the work that you do uh, in the recent letters from the Universal House of Justice, they always talk about in various ways this engaging in a dialogue with the outside world, with like-minded causes. Um, and I love that you're doing that with Tahare, that Tahare really is a tool to engage in that dialogue. You're engaging with the justice community, with the civil rights community, with the women's rights community on a spiritual level, offering a Baha'i perspective. That's right. Tahereh right now is the largest nonprofit in the United States that helps exclusively immigrant women and girls. And we're a pretty important player, not only in the direct legal services community, but also in the public policy advocacy community. Um, Our public policy professionals on staff are regularly at the White House. They're regularly in Congress. They're regularly in different spheres of dialogue Mm -hmm. and decision-making. And there's so many critical moments and critical opportunities to lend a very unique perspective to solving the ills of humanity, not just one person at a time, but on a structural level. So you've taken some Baha'i ideals, founded an organization that is on the front lines, both, you know, in the legal and justice communities and in the nonprofit sector in um, kind of actualizing Baha'u'llah's teachings and promoting that social discourse. Yes, but we still don't really know what we're doing. So I You think guys know what you're doing. No, no, no. It's a journey. It's a journey. And really, from, from the, the perspective of sophistication and maturity, I think in the Baha'i community and the Tahari Justice Center is, is simply a part of that process. We're a step on that ladder. We're really at the beginning stages as of a high community in trying to figure out the complexity and the systematic way to implement principles of Baha'u'llah in society. So, yes, we're part of that, and we're a part of that journey. We haven't figured it out, but we're we're on our way along with uh, all the You've Baha'i had community. 20 years. You haven't gotten it figured out? Yeah, I know. It's taken a long it's time. It's time to... 
close up shop. Yeah, sorry. Um, how can uh, listeners get involved with Tahare? Well, our website is www.tahirih.org. We spell Tahare the way it's spelled in the Dawnbreakers. I know it's spelled different ways at different places. And there's lots of information there about ways to volunteer, ways to donate, ways to pray for us, um, how to support the work, how to host a fundraiser for us. There are many, many things that can be done. Sign up, um, advocate with us on issues. Wonderful. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for being on one of our very early episodes of Baha'i Blog Cast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. Cool. Thank Thanks you. for chatting with me. Sorry I was late. <laughs> you weren't and, that late. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were so patient, as I said, and um, good luck uh, with the horseshoes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>